Bullpen Session. This is Patrick Lillis. Glad you're here. Glad you're listening. Recording from the Southeast Theater Conference, and it's great to be back at the conference. And it's the, I think this is the third year that we've been physically here. Did a couple of remotes during the pandemic. Um, but the conference is great. I mean, it's this largest conference of combining educational and professional theater together and really feeling the buzz of people trying to create opportunities for early career artists from auditioning to undergrad to job fairs to design competitions but it's not really about I mean the competition sure if you win it's about the competition but really what it's about is the contact with the incredible talented designers who come and give you give the students feedback on their work and hearing the speakers and being connected with uh, incredibly great artists who very generously share their experience and their beliefs with the young artist, incredibly talented artist and passionate. And I've just getting to t- talk to them. And also it's nice to see friends and the people from the schools that the College Collab have worked with. And that's always great. But, you know, my favorite thing is talking, I want to say talking with the students, but the truth is it's watching the students talk to each other and talk to the guests that are here and what questions they're asking and where they're at and and they're really impressive uh not that that's surprising but that's the joy of the the conference and it seems to be in full swing it seems to be back uh, last year we were back but that felt a little cautious because of the pandemic maybe and coming out of it and now it feels in full swing and it's just a, an impressive event and i'm really happy to share today's conversation with director and I think he's director of illusion at Harry Potter on Broadway and worldwide, as you'll hear him talk about. Uh, Skyla is also co-artistic director of theater in Brooklyn uh, called Night Drive, which I just learned about prior to the, somewhere about, somewhere last summer, and it's an incredible theater company. I'll talk about that. And I was, you know, it's great. I had to come to Lexington so I could talk to somebody who lives in Brooklyn with me. But uh, it was such a great conversation. I'm excited to share it with you. We we share some the values of directing beliefs of creating theater and the why. And um, but also, I just liked the elevated thought that he has about the importance of theater in the moment. And one of the things I heard him say in his keynote that he didn't say in the interview is just that, like when you're creating a play, this idea that the shared space that we're in that every moment has led up to all of us being together at this time. And I thought it's a really special way of thinking about it and and that this is a special moment and that this is an experience that we're supposed to have. And, um, and I loved it. It was really, the conversation was great. I look forward to continuing talking with him and getting to know him. And, and you know, I'm happy to share the conversation with you. And with that, play ball. So I head back to New York for three hours. I'm picking up some stuff at a magic shop there that I need. And then I'm off to Sao Paulo in Brazil for three days. And is that work? It is work. I'm uh, designing a new production of Wicked in Sao Paulo. It's the second non-replica production in the world. The first was in Hamburg, Germany. And my friend Chris designed the magic for that. And then this is a brand new production and i'm designing magic for it and 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 it's not uh, joe montella direction it's some it other is production. not so this is the second time ever it's not been joe's direction and it's a different design team oh that's great and it's I, really and, exciting and you're there three days uh, three days so they reached out for the first time so recently um so i've been down there for a week doing some work and helping get everything started now they're in performance tonight's their first performance so i'm headed out to watch some previews and do some rehearsal and fix some things well, that's and fix something. Fix some things. <laughs> they told you, and they told you, well, hey, we got. Questions I'm going to find this. out all the things I got to fix once I get there. Let me tell you. Well, because you know it's a fast process, and making a new show like a Wicked, they're doing such a huge production. They're pushing the country's production capacity. Um, yeah. To make it. That's what I. And how did? You, it's funny. I'm going to ask the easy the Harry Potter one, but how did you get that gig? It's a great question. Well, it's related to the Harry Potter thing. I mean, I, I th- when you work on Harry Potter, um, it. It has been like the great door opener of my my life, honestly. But um, they'd reached out. It's the same production managers from Harry Potter who are production managing this. So it's Gary B. Stone Associates. Um, oh, that's great. And so they reached out. 
uh, task if I, if I had some time and could make it fit. And I was like, hey, it sounds like a blast. So I do have to go back up because, and I feel like I just heard your keynote, so I know a little bit of the answer, but how, how did you get Harry Potter? And I asked to become, what's the title? Yes, of course. So I'm the Illusions and Magic Associate for Harry Potter and the Cursed Child on Broadway and around the world. And and had, this is going to sound like a question I feel like I should know the answer to, but had you worked at that level? I mean, there's nothing at that level, right? I mean, Fair enough. Global. But have you worked close to that level before of commercial theater or? Not in that kind of role. Yeah. I'd, I'd um, worked as an assistant for... A, real, a big choreographer named Andy Blankenbuehler who choreographed Hamilton and the revival of Cats and directed and choreographed Bandstand. But, you know, that was in an, effectively an executive assistant role where I was doing some creative work but also a lot of just life managing. Um, and I'd done a lot of work kind of floating around the Broadway world but never in a creative role on Broadway. And so how did the, how did the Harry Potter come up for you? Yeah. Well, so it came up with kind of two parallel pathways. Um, there was this Scottish theater company called Vox Modus, who, you know, I have a theater company in New York called Night Drive. And I, you know what? I'm going to back up before I ask about Harry Potter because, yes. yeah, let's give, we'll give the listener context for that. You have a theater company and because you're a director. Yeah. And when did you start the theater company? So we started making work together. I should say the theater company, I'm a co-artistic director with Simon Henriquez, who's my writing partner, and we co-create shows. I direct and design them, and he performs in them, along with other designers and performers. We met each other in school at university and uh, just kind of clicked in this way. We started writing together. We're very different people. Uh, I'm very outgoing external processor he is a super internal processor i think we both uh have a deep admiration for the way the other person walks through the world i know i certainly do of him and uh i think i was always like jealous of him I'm like how do you do what you do he's so funny and quick and specific and thoughtful and we started making work together at the time i was running a theater company i'd started with high school friends in boston where we'd go do these seasons of ambitious theater over the summer together uh, when we were on break from school. Self-produced ambitious theater. Self-produced ambitious theater. And so I started bringing friends from college to meet my friends from high school and we'd all do this, you know, together. And that was my first theater company. It was called Circuit Theater. And Oliver Butler, who runs Debate Society, he was teaching a workshop at my school. And I remember he said, everyone has to get their first theater company out of their system. And I think that's a bit what Circuit was. Like it was this deep passion project for everyone. And I was graduating college and and kind of felt like, hey, I need to go back and be a really small fish in a big pond for a while and and stop trying to just make, make, make uh, these seasons of regional theater effectively and learn and and be in a position where I could be flexible or I didn't, I wasn't responsible for a community of people and all their jobs and, and livelihoods, you know, at 21 or 22, right? And so... I moved to New York with Simon and we were making plays and we actually were like, we're not going to be a theater company because we know what that means. We've done this, you know, uh, let's, uh, and, and we were lucky to be. I'm going to make that joke right now because the farm is about in the fall, it'll be 10 years old. Uh And I'm like, Oh, if I only knew when I started it, how much work. (laughs) Exactly. Right. And it's so much work and, and it's so easy given the way organizational structure legally works in the United States for your organization to outgrow its purpose and its mission and to actually hurt. And that was what we were worried about. We were like, well, we just want to make our plays together. That's all we want to do. And it was a much narrower mission in some ways than Circuit was, which was doing this, like bringing this certain kind of theater to Boston with a certain kind of artist. And so we were just making plays and we were lucky to find homes at other theaters where uh, Ars Nova adopted us very early while we were still in college and we were doing Ant Fests with oh, them. Great. Uh, it was amazing. Yeah, the brick. Um, we'd take the bus from Providence uh, up to New York and do <laughs> do shows or meetings and things. And so we graduated and moved and we were making our little shows that were truly at that time, we were both 
the performers in them. I was directing them. We were writing them. We were designing them. But then our team started to grow. And as they started to grow um, and we started to make bigger and more ambitious work, we were like, maybe maybe this has to be a company a little bit in order to communicate what we're trying to do and also support the kind of process we want to have. And that's how we founded Night Drive. Um, at the time, we brought on our friend Jenny to be our executive producer. And the three of us kind of started to navigate, well, what is the structure that's right for us as a company? How are we going to make this work? And we're still figuring that out. But I think our goal was always shape this company in a way that supports the work we want to make and the people who make it. And if it is doing more than that, it is doing too much. Um, And yeah, so now we make kind of we uh big weird ambitious strange magical theatrical experiences and plays in and around new york and now starting to tour nationally um that hopefully push the limits of what theater can do to tell a story in an exciting new way well it's interesting because you know when talk about illusion and what theater can do but i i'm interested in the sound the permission of ambitious Mm. like where where did that impulse come? Because you used the word a couple of times of I'm gonna we want it to be ambitious and what did it mean to you? And I love the idea of like, you know, I heard you in the keynote, don't you know, if somebody if that's the way to do the play, I don't need to do the play that way. That's how other people have done it. Sure. I, but where did that yeah, where do you think it, it may not be where, but how did that spirit of ambition come to you? It's a really good question. And ambitious is a tough word, isn't it? Because I think there is rightfully a real skepticism about a real distrust of power and skepticism about people who seek it. And I think ambition is a word that can really describe uh, grabbing for power, grabbing for control, grabbing for um, status and influence. And that isn't exciting to me. I mean, any or at least it's not any more exciting than it is to anyone else. I was like, sure, it's like amazing to get to like sure. work on Broadway and like that's the kind of status, right? Um, but well, there's think, an ambition in there, sure, exactly, sure. right? And, and I think the kind of ambition that I love and that's exciting to me is to tell a story in a new way or like do something we've never seen before or succeed at doing something that we've not seen succeed before. I mean, we tend to really love embracing forms of things that are foreign to us or that we would never make. You know, we did this this show, Alien Nation, which was a live immersive alien movie. And it was, the form of it was basically like immersive nightclub theater. And we are not people who go to nightclubs. We are like very like quiet, <laughs> homebody people. And so we're like, oh God, we can't imagine making an immersive nightclub show we'd like. But what would that be like? You know, what is there? What is the seed of that in there that we can learn from? Because maybe in something we're not drawn to, there is a challenge to figure out how to draw someone like us to it that will embrace a larger group of people. And and again, you know, I talked about this a little in the keynote, but like, why do that? Why does that story need to take that form? And for us, it was a, that in particular was a play about a group of college students who are figuring haven't figured out how to be good people and good to each other. And uh, basically one of them comes back from abroad and has been, is different. And the way in which she's different is she is a much better person than she used (laughs) to be. And the reason is because she's been body snatched by this alien that um, slowly starts to uh, invade all of their bodies and makes them better people. And in the process, they're running away from the FBI. They have this big cross-country road trip. But the, the piece starts kind of in their world of like going out to nightclubs in the city where they go to college and returns back at the very end, 10 years later to the same space. And they're all very different people and have grown apart. And, um, and so that was our challenge. Like, like, well, can we make a nightclub mean something to us? Um, if it doesn't right now, and can we explode the way people move through that space, uh, to tell us a story more cinematically? Just, yeah, I love it. And I love, that's why I was just the idea couple of things. When you said take on new forms, I always think when I'm directing a play, I'm like, well, if I know how the play works, if I know how to do it, I don't need to do it. Exactly. Yeah. And and it just sounds like from the get go from this partnership in school and that and that in high school, too, of like, let's let's figure it out. And I also I want to come back to and 
uh, the the why of like when you said if we can make this nightclub yeah do what it's supposed to do it's clear that there's a there's a there's a intentionality yeah, behind the style it's yeah. not it's not form for the sake of form it's well that's the challenge isn't it like we have this industry challenge where often immersive or even sometimes theme parks are pushing and, and experimental theater artists are pushing the form in really exciting ways, but haven't necessarily, and not that they have to, no one has to, but, but haven't embraced the relationship between that and story and that and narrative. And then more traditional theater, I've really, you know, embraced narrative, embraced story, embraced great new writing, but haven't necessarily embraced the most exciting or impactful ways to tell those stories. I think for us, at Night Drive, what we talk about is like story is a way is something that immerses us. That that narrative, like we see the world, you know, everyone to a certain extent sees the world in narrative form. And so it is an immersive feature, not a bug. And we're excited about taking the best of both of those worlds and seeing like, can we tell stories in a form that is not like theater anymore can it can there be characters and they go on a journey if we're not you know standing on stage with a curtain right and, and have you ever done a show for your theater company that's standing on a stage with a curtain oh of course we have but it, <laughs> it has to be in conversation with that we did um we did a show uh for one night at Ars Nova called thank you sorry that the, the premise of it was it was a rock concert um so naturally kind of had to be on stage to right. a certain extent but the um it was about uh, privilege and dealing with uh, privilege in relationship to art making. And um, part of the premise of it is that Simon, this is back when we were performing all our shows, but Simon and I both grew up in houses where we had a lot of musical instruments and aren't great at playing any of them. So there was a an element to us being forced to kind of like <laughs> be mediocre publicly um, in the face of having the opportunity to, you know, embrace a lot of the privilege that we had um and so there that was a show that was on a stage like with literally a big red curtain but was we wrote it to be immersed like the thing that we always say is all theater is immersive theater if you are thinking about it right you are immersing an audience in that experience and you can embrace the real room you're in and the real circumstance you're in or not no yeah i was looking around just doing the research of night drive and, and seeing and going, oh, every space, every 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 image is like, oh, that's a different experience, a different physical experience, you know, mm. clearly. And it felt like, and I also got an emotional feeling of like what that experience is. Mm. And uh, it was exciting because I, I think the, how do you do that? And I want to talk, I want to go back to the embracing the experience of being mediocre. Oh yeah. <laughs> what what does that mean to you because I think that's I I think it's great. I mean, we all have to fail to grow and we all have to fail to create because if we don't fail, we didn't try. And but but to allow yourself to be average. I mean, it's an interesting like I think all theater is failure. It is the art of failing at reaching, you know, at reaching an asymptote you'll never reach, right? Of perfection and that failure night to night being meaningful and interesting. And that's part of where we get back to like the value of pushing the limits of our form because it's not very interesting to, if failure is inevitable, to watch someone fail at doing something safe. Yeah. Right? Whereas watching someone really swing and miss is meaningful. And when I say failure, I don't, I, I, I want it to get out of its negative association for a second. All I mean is that you can't be perfect. Right, right, on stage, right. right? You're you're live, and it's going to be different every single night. I think the reason I'm drawn to theater as a maker versus, say, film, is if you can be perfect in a film, and and it would. I like to think that theater has over time, and hopefully will continue to bring out the best parts of me because it forces me to embrace imperfection and embrace process over product. That what you're building when you build a piece of theater is you're building a process by which a group of people will make something together every night. You're not building the thing that they make. So I, I, that's where I see like, like failure and, and uh, being 
valuable is understanding it's the currency of watching theater. Like the most meaningful thing is, is to like, like, like we talk about doing impossible things, right? Um, we will take that alien show, for example, right? Like we have some cinematic sequences in that where, you know, you're supposed to be watching a car pull across this highway and then into a driveway at a house and everyone gets out of the car and then they're walking up to this house and there's a snowstorm. We can't literally put that on stage. So everything we do there is going to be a failure. But it's like, can we fail in a way that's communicative and interesting? In the case of that particular play, because we were in conversation with cinematic language, it was about smashing cinema, which I think is how we imagine our lives, right? Yeah. With real space and time, which is how we live our lives. And it was a play about the gap between the stories we tell ourselves about who we are and who we actually are and what our actions actually communicate. And so that it, it was using failure as a formal tool. That's great. And did you, did you use the cinema to get us driving up to? Well, no, what we did, we had, if I describe the sequence of events, it sounds crazy. We use all these miniatures in the show so we could zoom people out. So there, you know, imagine this being in a nightclub, but a nightclub that really transforms through the show. So the audience is walking together, moving through it. Like they're, they're being moved and moving themselves as scenes take place different places. But we've just seen a scene in a car. So the six characters are sitting in six chairs, kind of really tight together in the middle of the space. And then the lights pan over and on the bar, you just see a tiny car driving itself across the bar. And then the curtain of the bar opens up and there's a house, a little house that slides out with all the windows glowing. And then you hear the sound of snow and then the people get out of their seats and are starting to walk up and there's the booth light. The booth window just starts to glow like one of those and they're walking up towards it, towards the door to the booth. Um, and, you know, and so we play with scale and things like yeah. that. Like how do we create what those oh, shots would it. be? It's, uh, it, I know uh, we were talking, you're going to talk about one of the influences of theater, but uh, for you, but when, I remember in college going to the Amsterdam Mime Festival mm. in London, but I thought it was things like that yeah. that made me change my perception of what oh theater gosh. can be. Yeah, and that idea of like changing scale, and then and I also asked cinema because I I don't know if I've talked about it on the pod before, but there was a company that did uh, Frankenstein, and they showed the outside scenes on a scrim, and then the inside lab stuff the film would go away and then it was people moving like they were in a black and white film with fourth perspective mm. stage. And Was this manual cinemas, Frankenstein? Yeah. Oh, they're very cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was amazing. It was amazing. But, but it, that whole festival made me, it did what you're talking about. It made me go, oh, we can, we can change our perspective of what storytelling can be. Absolutely. And um, doing that, going back to my question about Harry Potter and the level of working, how did that... Yeah, how'd the job come about, and and yeah, how'd you get it introduced? So, uh, the thing about running a theater company, and you know this, Patrick, is like you start to like look around and be like, who else is doing kind of what we want to do, or who else feels like a kindred spirit company? As much as you look for inspiration, you also look for where are my colleagues, and like where are the people who we can kind of band together, or I can be inspired by their work. And there was a Scottish theater company. There is a Scottish theater company called Vox Modus that I'd been following because they made the just the most creative pieces of theater and the form of no two were in the same form. They were, didn't like find an aesthetic and stick to it. It was like every, the form of each play embraced the story completely. You know, they did a piece with no language that was all movement called Dragon that they co-made with a theater company in Beijing and then toured that was, you know, about this traumatized teenager and their relationship may be imaginary, may be real. They develop with these dragons <laughs> who are flying through their space. Then they made this piece, Flight, which was in New York at the McKittrick. It was a play with no actors, where you sit around a carousel in a booth with headphones on, and 300 little dioramas pass in front of you and light up as sound plays. And it's beautiful. It's this, this immigration story about these two kids uh, immigrating or running away from Afghanistan to the UK. Yeah. And... Uh, and so I, I was kind of completely in love with what they were doing and, and I'd been following their work and hadn't gotten to see it. I missed Dragon at Edinburgh the one time I went. And at the same time, I was totally inspired by the collaboration of John Tiffany and Stephen Hoggett, who a lot of people know as the director and choreographer of Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, but yeah. also Once, also Black Watch, which is a spectacular piece of theater. Yeah. I know one that really, I think, impacted me deeply was their production of Glass Menagerie, which was 
ju- it it was the did the thing of making you hear a play you know like it was the first time and it was so beautifully staged and conceived and designed in a way that felt like it could it's one of those pressures you saw me like well this couldn't possibly be staged any other way um it was amazing so i i i was really fascinated by them and i was like gosh i would love to work in the same room as them and they sometimes work in the states and so i was looking up what they were doing next and i was like oh god it's harry potter i'm never you know it's Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Like <laughs> everyone and their mom is going to want to be in this room. And so I was like, well, who's designing this show? Because it, it must be the, an all-star team. And I was looking down and it said Magic and Illusions Design, Jamie Harrison. And Jamie Harrison is one of the two artistic directors of Vox Modus. And so I was like, oh my God, I didn't know he did magic, which I somehow had been following them and I just had no idea because, you know, when magic's part of your theater making, it's not necessarily what you're advertising. Like, oh, we're the magic theater company. They're not, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you, you know, not to cut out the whole biography of that, but you do magic, but it's not how you would define your theater company. No, absolutely not. I mean, it's just a, a tool we use in telling stories. So I think of myself as a theater artist first, but I was like, I was like, I love this guy's work. I've been following it. And I, so I reached out to him via email and just said, hey, like, I know you're not going to believe me, but I've been following Vox Notice for years. I missed Dragon at Edinburgh. I, you know. I love what you do, and I saw you're working on Harry Potter. I didn't know you did magic. I do magic. I run a theater company. You know, I just kind of like word vomited. But it was basically like, if you need an assistant or an associate or some, you know, someone, I'd love to talk to you. And he wrote back a few days later and said, you know, let's let's chat. And we skyped from the lobby of the Signature Theater in New York. And um, I'm gonna pause in the in the email. It was I want to work with you. Yeah, in some I, mean, form. I, I mean, yes, it was like, if you need someone, I think was the was the way I said it, which is like the very like, you know, trying not to be like, please, 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 please. But that was what I was clearly communicating, you know, and and he got back and it was, I mean, that conversation on Skype was so lovely be, because we barely had time to talk about Harry Potter. I mean, it was just, it was like meeting uh, yourself, but a slightly different version of you. You know, like Jamie and I aren't the same person right. by any means, but had such a similar interests and things we cared about and ways of Sounds thinking. like value system. Yeah, exactly. And it was just this like, whoa. And then I met Chris, who's the UK associate on the show, who helped make the original show in the UK. Like, and is a brilliant magic designer in his own right. And, uh, and we really gelled. Like there was this thing of it felt really exciting. And at the end of the call, you know, I, I talked about this in the keynote. He did say like, who sent you to me? Uh, Jamie did. And I, I told him, I was like, honestly, no, when I emailed you out of the blue, I'm sorry if that's not okay. And he's like, no, 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 I, you're allowed to tell me I won't feel bad. I just want to know who sent me because he didn't believe anyone could be a fan of Vox Modus. <laughs> I think he still doesn't. Right. How do you is, know me? Which is, yeah, exactly. Um, and I was like, I pr- listen, I promise you, like I've just been following your company. And it turned out the day before I'd written, the general managers of the show in the U.S. had reached out to him and said, we need to find you a U.S. associate. And he said at the end of that call, you know, listen, we're going, they're going to want us to interview people. And so we're going, you're going to interview you. We're going to interview every, everyone they think we should. And, uh, and they did. And it took like six months. And I, and there were multiple interviews. That's when I met Chris. That's, you know, I met our production manager, Gary, um, I met who's now our associate producer Thomas through that process. I it was terrifying, and I told no one in my life I was interviewing for for this job. So I would hear from other friends because you know a lot of people in Magic were interviewing for this job. I would hear what was going on with other people from other friends, which was terrifying. And it got you mean, to wait. wait. Was it terrifying because other people were interviewing, and you yes. were worried you're like, wait, yes, am I, I not going to get this? Yeah, of course. I mean, I I was like, you know remembering that I was a theater person. I was like, this is a magic theater job. And there were serious magicians interviewing. I was like, well, you know, I, that is not who I am. And I'm just going to ask a simple yeah. question. Cause I don't know how you interview for magic is, are they asking you about how you would go about doing it? Or are you, or is it more interviewing on your knowledge to be able to support somebody? I mean, it's a little mix of everything. You know, it's, it's certainly like, your background knowledge, how you've done things in the past, you know, how have you used magic? I think I now know, because I've been on the other side of this interviewing table, a bunch hiring for Harry Potter, hiring for shows where I'm designing and, and I'm hiring an associate. It's um, so much of it is, is how do you deal with people? 
so much of it is how do you deal with people? Because doing magic with people is scary. You know, they feel like they can fail very publicly. They're all beginners when they start out doing it. Theater is deeply collaborative. You can't just say, I want it this way. This is how it's going to be, right? And so it's about being able to take really thoughtful care of the people who choose to collaborate with you. And so honestly, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the interview process was about that. And I got a call in late October. We were starting rehearsals beginning of December. And I got a call in late October of that year. I, I remember um, and they said, we need you to do one last talk with our production manager. And I went into the theater while it was still being renovated and talked to him at the end. He's like, right. So I think, you know, I, they, he basically was like, we needed someone to meet you in person to make sure you were the person you were on Skype because everyone was <laughs> pretty, um, He's like, I think you got this. And I was walking and I got to, you know, walk up Broadway and call my parents and be like, I, th I think I'm, I think I'm doing this job that you didn't know that I was interviewing for. And it was really special. And, um, yeah, I mean, the end of the story is, is I got to do it and it changed. It was genuinely life changing. It is working yeah, on Harry Potter. Cause this is, it, I mean, it's your first official magic design, illusion design job. Yeah. Right. And, and it's the largest one there. Yeah, is. and getting to work with the people who are at the top of their field in every yeah. way, you know, Jamie and Chris being at the, you know, the top of their field in magic, but also in music, in scenic, in lighting, like everyone in the show in movement is, is, is the best at what they do. It was, yeah, it was just uh, you're thinking about it because you, your theater company is incredibly imaginative, creative, magical, yeah. but not as you said earlier, not advertised in that way. And yeah, so, we're not making shows on Broadway yet. Well, uh, not only not on Broadway, <laughs> but you're not saying I'm a magician. No, absolutely I'm not. an illusionist yeah. doing this. I'm Theater is an illusion, but yeah. you're creative and imaginative. And I just think it was just, I love the fact that you reached out and told him we, we share this. Yeah. You know, and then all of a sudden a conversation can happen because I, one of my questions is always, you know, uh, what do you think helped you get to the next level? Mm. Clearly that job got you to the next level, but what helped is you courageously uh, sending the email. Yeah, I mean, I have to tell you, it was like one of the luckiest things I did. And and you can look, you can always look back and see the chain of events that led to that and go, oh my God, all these things that I thought were setbacks, all these things, you know, like th this all led to this. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that great how time works? Um <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know where where everything adds up when when things work out. Um, but yeah, no, and and the the experience of making that show in New York and also around the world has been transformative. Yeah, and well, that's you know it's actually it is transformative. I was thinking as I was also listening, going, well, you're gonna have go to another country tomorrow yeah. and you have four shows on broadway am i right oh my up? gosh yeah that is that right because we have harry potter's running beautiful noises running ham that ham coming yep and maybe oh I, you know what i took the new york theater workshop show or the roundabout show i worked on a show at roundabout yeah yeah but that was off broadway at the Laura Pels, but there are also <laughs> other ones in the works. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I mean, the truth is, Fat Ham is opening in the theater next to Harry Potter, and there's this amazing thing to like walk down the block and be like, "I know those people. I know those people. <laughs> this is great." I mean, you know, it is. Yeah. Broadway is such a silly thing, and it's such a small world, right? It's like these forty theaters. Why? But you know, I grew up admiring and loving this stuff, and it, it's you have to pinch yourself sometimes. Well, I just said that it was funny. I was just talking last week to. On the pod, Stacey Raymond, and we have friends, I'm a member of Labyrinth Theater Company, and so between Riverside and Crazy was on Broadway, and it's like, it, it, for a long time it feels like the dream, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, that's where I work. You know, that's the yeah. bar, and the bar becomes lower, not, doesn't become any less special, it just becomes more achievable mm -hmm. as you start to see it and think about the level of work you're doing, because yeah. that's where you should be. Um, when you said time, I want you to talk about the, your, this philosophy of theater of how special it is that we're all in the room together. Mm. Because I really, I, you and I both, I, I listen to keynote and, the, and the going back to your why, why are you doing it? I talk about that a lot. And so yeah. Yeah, it's foundational in the immediate, Peter Brook and the immediate theater and, you know, why this play, why this audience, why now? But I think the specialness that you talked about was a way in which I loved thinking about it and can you can you talk about that idea a little bit of yeah, time of least? course 
I mean, I had a professor named Spencer Golub who would say that, uh, this is a paraphrase, sorry, Spencer, but this uh, theater is the manipulation of our experience of time through the manipulation of space. And I think that time is the currency of theater, right? It's, um, you know, I don't want to, I, I don't want any of this when I'm talking about the specialness of being in a room together over time. I don't want it to knock the brilliant digital theater work that was innovated because of the pandemic and is growing. And like, listen, space is loosely defined. Well, I say this. So, right. right? But uh, this is speaking to my experience as someone who's not mainly made digital theater. Um, the I'll interrupt and say, yeah. I think the shared space, uh, I think the digital theater that was happening is a very specific thing, but theater and the essence of what I call theater is where we share the space. Sure, absolutely. And I guess my point is, like, I think if someone tells me something is theater, I'll say it's theater. I'm not going to argue with them and say, this is a podcast. <laughs> like, I don't, I, I, right, what's right, the right. point? Like, like, the artist defines how they, they're asking, they're inviting you to see something a certain way. But since I primarily make live work in person, um, I can say the radical thing about theater, it is not a, is not its quantitative impact because you will never reach as many people as this podcast, as a TV show, as a movie. There's just, you simply can't fit them in the theater, even in a big, big space. It is about qualitative impact. It is the depth of impact you can achieve when you share space with people. And you know, there's so few places we walk into now where we intentionally share space with strangers, um, where we share space with strangers and like look them in the eye and say, yeah, we're in this together for a little bit. And that space as a result feels kind of revolutionary if you treat it as special. Um, we, I, I, something I didn't get to talk about in, in the keynote, but one, it was like why people go to theater still when so many like experiences can be offered at home. I, I was saying earlier, like there was a thing at, in my college student theater where we'd say like, is it better than dinner? You know, about play because it's true. Like, dinner's amazing. Like, have you had a meal with people you love? It is just the best thing. And I, I feel like, and that's sharing space, right? So, how do you, why do people still go to theater? And my gut of why they do is there's something about it that at its best can make you feel less small and less alone. It can get you in touch with your agency, with your power as a human being to not just live in the world the way it is, but the fact that you are shaping the world to be what it is, and it helps change the way you think about how you're going to shape the world when you leave. And that's not instructional, and that's not being like, we're going to tell you what you're doing is wrong at all. It's actually about, hopefully, you as an artist tapping into, like, what am what is the thing about myself that I'm afraid to say out loud? You know what I mean? Like, what, like, what am I... You know, we did this show during the pandemic. This was, you know, my writing partner and I live in the same house with four other people <laughs> um, who are all artists we've, we've worked with um, in, in Brooklyn. And we made a show in our backyard. We didn't think we were going to make any work. And this isn't, you know, we usually are working in theaters or like, you know, other creators were like, we're going to do a show in our backyard for 10 people at a time. It's we're going to sit around a campfire and drink beer and make s'mores. And it's about summer camp counselors dealing with a civil war that's getting closer and closer to their camp after their kids go to bed they're figuring out what do we do about this civil war and it was you know it was a play about dealing with change and or and like institutional change and like the fact that like something we were talking about like what is scary to us we were like we're in a world that's changing and it is scary to give up the traditions that formed you but the only way we will live in a better and just world is if we are brave enough to give up the traditions that formed us and someone has to do it. And when is it your responsibility? And that was like, as an example, that was just something we were sitting and thinking about a lot. Well, while we were making that play, we're like, I think this is what this play is about. I think we're making a play about that. And can we create a space by creating this really like intimate, cozy space that feels familiar and foreign at the same time? Where an audience, a small group of people feel seen, feel like, oh, it feels good to be part of this group, but also to feel like, oh, the, I feel the discount, I feel the chafing at being part of this group. And where, 
you know, by the end of the play, the, the summer camp basically can't ex- doesn't and can't exist anymore. And where we, you know, hopefully, and for the first time in the play, talk directly to the audience and just sit around the campfire and, and tell a story where we can um, give them permission to join in the, on the like imagining doing things differently. Um, and because sometimes if you just imagine it together, it feels easier to do. Right. And also when you imagine it, it's then possible. Yeah. Because you've seen it. Exactly. You know. And, exactly. And I, I, I love that. I love, I love where you got to at the end about the imagine it together because I think, and I think people go to the theater for, your, your wording of that is so great that you're, because I know that when we're in the theater, we are designing a world for people to have an experience. Mm-hmm. But when they have that experience, they're inspired and affirmed so that they can go out and create the world they want to create. Yeah. And I do love the idea that I saw the, it's very funny, I saw the picture of that campfire. Actually, I also knew of that production and I feel like I'm the, oh, no way. Um, and I love that it ended up people talking and just talking about what is imagined, you know, because yeah. yes, then it's possible. And you talk about, talk about magic being, making the impossible possible. Yeah. And I think you know, at its root, theater is magic yes yes it is right you know know, none of it existed before and now we're creating worlds Mm. you know and then getting you to believe in it (laughs) yes and none of that happened Mm. i mean it did but not the way you experienced it yeah so it's amazing um it's, it's amazing i love the whole conversation um i want to ask just it's funny this was a collaboration question that i had and it's and it's interesting because I think for doing illusion on a scale of you know, and it's funny we're always doing illusion in a theater, but when you're doing illusion, illusion, mm-hmm. uh, you need to collaborate with all the designers. And I gotta feel like it's collaboration, but at some point, you're also telling there has to be an instruction of how this trick works. Sure. And it only works if they look here and we go. Here. So it has to dictate the design elements in some way. Yeah. And and is it built together with limitations of dictation or is it is it discovered together or is there an understanding at some point I need this to happen so this can happen? Mm. How do you approach that conversation? Well, it's a real mix. I will say I've been lucky to almost always work with designers who early in the process, because I often, you know, the thing that's new about this is this is not a position so much that people are hiring, you know, once you're already in rehearsal, we're like, crap, we have to make a, a, a magic thing happen, you know, that I'm joining early, early in production. So they're conceptualizing these moments alongside me and they get invested, you know, they get invested in making them happen too. Um, and I've been just moved by my collaborators who've, you know, pushed themselves to be able to make these moments happen. I mean, there's a certain amount of instruction in that, like, I know things about the way magic works and can say, hey, like, this will really help lighting-wise, or, like, this would really help from sound. But the way people go about that, you know, if I tell them it has to be like this, this, and this, uh, I'm missing out on the opportunity to learn from someone approaching a problem in a new way. And... I'm trying, I'm working on, I'm constantly working on when people ask, I'm working with a director right now who asks this question all the time. Well, does this have to be just like this? And I'm working on thinking, huh, does it? I don't know. Like, what are the things that limit it? Because sometimes on a process, you're like, yes, well, I've already talked about the thing with the money and the thing with the thing and the thing with the time. And, blah, blah, blah. and you can sometimes stop and go, you know, I don't know. Let me think about it. You know what I mean? Like, like I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe it could be done differently. Or maybe we could do this over there. Huh. That's interesting. And and so I don't want to create an environment where people feel like they have to give up on pushing, right? Because right. then I, I won't learn. And on the flip side, if if that's the environment we're in, then when I say, listen, the only way this will work is if it's, you know, these three things, th- then people trust that I'm not just, you know, right, right, right. seizing control of the production. Which you, which you want from everybody in every role. You yeah, want that collaboration. But at some point, somebody has to be the expert at one thing. Exactly. You know? And I think that, you know, I, the way I describe this role is it's a directing and design role. 
right? Because I'm staging with the performers and I'm also designing stuff. Yeah. And so it's it's a little bit of both, but the truth is you're just organizing the talents of another group of people to do impossible things. Like I I I am in the way that the director is organizing the talents of the group of people to tell a story. I am organizing that same group of people to tell moments of that story. That's great. And as you were talking about get working on, does it have to be this way? One of my questions that I like is, what do you think when you think about the ambitious uh, where you started mm-hmm. uh, and today when you go down to go to the three days of rehearsal, what do you think you carry into the room today that maybe you didn't when you were starting? Mm. Oh my gosh, when I was starting, I think, you know, like a lot of people who want to direct, I was like, I want to be in charge. You know what I mean? And it wasn't just for the sake of being in charge, but it was because I feel most like myself as a leader. I think that, that I think it's about like, like how do you feel most yourself? And I feel most myself as, as a leader. And I think something that has changed is I've developed a more complicated and nuanced view of what leadership is and and that there is leadership that is explicit as in it is like your position in a room there's leadership that's implicit which is how you carry yourself and how you enter space I mean I think something that Jamie champions and that Chris champions that I try to champion is is you know when you are the person in charge of doing magic, you have to kind of walk in the room as the cheerleader for everyone who's working with you every day. And and with a level of like of belief in them and care for them and interest in their perspective and the way they're they're coming into something. Um that is hot and you have to uh lead with your own vulnerability and be like, we're trying this thing. I don't know how it's going to go. Right. But a lot of belief, but I think it can be really cool. I'm really excited about this. Um, that not knowing has value and not knowing publicly has, has value. And, um, yeah, I think that that is what good leadership means to me now is being able to, genuinely have the people you're working with feel how much you care about them and that you are doing this as an expression of care for their creativity and artwork um, and craft and that that is how you rally people to do, to push the limits of what they can do. Yeah. Yeah. And that inviting into the process yes and and having that faith i think of we're going to find an answer yeah well it's so much as belief it's just like we're going to work it out we've never done it before we're going to work it out (laughs) right and if we don't we're going to work something else out yeah because something's going to happen absolutely and it's great um we talked about failure and putting that into a not a negative term Mm -hmm. i think it's Amazing. I was just thinking about the match at the illusion. You being in the house during a preview, mm. you know, and trying to figure something out, and the actor on stage. And if it didn't work, the audience knows it didn't work, mm-hmm. right? They saw. Yeah, some of the time, anyway, for sure. Right, or or maybe not, but and and that faith that when you when you talked about leadership, I think it's necessary because that person on stage who's going to be trying to make that happen, who's the face of making that happen, Mm -hmm. has to know that everyone else is working to make that happen. Yeah. And and that's also, I mean, it's so fundamentally basic of how to build a great play is you get everyone involved. But I think you have to have, you have to have everyone involved and everyone has to believe that they're invested in getting it right. Mm-hmm. so that that person can go out on stage and be like, well, maybe I don't disappear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and the thing we say all the time is you are not responsible for making the magic work. You are responsible for telling this story. We are responsible for making the magic work. We're going to work to support you in getting there, right? And it just 
it is so much pressure to walk on stage never having been a magician and then be like, oh, I guess I'm doing a mat. And even if people are rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed, which they tend to be, the first time you do it is like, wait, I'm going to do what in front of people? <laughs> and so you're right. I mean, it's it's remembering that these moments are in service of something bigger and not of their own success. And that that something bigger can be a success, whether they succeed or fail. So I... It's success because of the intent of yeah, what you're trying exactly. to do and, and, and why and, you're and, doing and, it. Yeah, and the, the play can succeed without every moment of magic succeeding all the time because the play is so much bigger than these moments, right? Um, they matter. They're there because they matter. But, you know, in theater, it's such a forgiving place to do magic because at a magic show, you go being like, well, you better fool me. <laughs> Whereas in theater, so often we do things that are magical but aren't pure magic, right? Where it's like that feels unbelievable. Maybe I see how it's done, but it's so exciting. Like The gesture of it is so exciting. And so that audience is permissive in a different way. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because they're not, they're not, they don't think they're going there to be fooled. And I don't think we're really trying to fool them, to be totally honest. I think we're trying to create an experience. Well, I go back. Yeah, I was thinking of a hundred things, but thinking about your scale of the car. Uh -huh. They know it's not a car. Yeah. But they're invested in the car. Yeah, exactly. And they know they're outside, even though it's smaller than inside. Yes, <laughs> exactly. So It's just speaking, you know, it's, it's teaching the audience a, a private language that you can speak with them. That's... That's actually true. I think that's true with every production when you're directing as well as all of it is you are, you have to be in agreement with what the language is. And yet we, and that agreement is formed really quickly with the audience. They're all like, for all the reasons that they come, they come because they want to be yeah. with you. Yeah. And, but it is amazing to me how quickly we all agree. Yeah, and then and then once you teach it, you can start speaking it, and that gets really exciting. Yeah, right. That's like this people, this group of people in the room have our own. We have our own language together. That that once we know the codes and everything, we can start really speaking in that language, and it can actually be anything. People are pretty amazing. Audiences are so smart. Um, they're so much smarter than we are. You know, there I some musician who said this, but the, this idea that um. Uh, you know, I, I, he was teaching a master class and was asking the students, you know, uh, do you think you're, you know more about your songs or your audience knows more about your songs? They said, well, I think I know more about my songs. And, and he said, um, how come you can work on a song for years and they can know in 30 seconds if it's a hit? Right? And it's a good reminder that for all the talk there is about why aren't people going to theater? They're not being exposed to it. It's too expensive. They don't... They're not going to theater because, and I'm sorry to say it, a lot of theater is not very good. I love theater, but a lot of it is not very good. And would you like to be in a, trapped in a room with something not very good that you're not allowed to leave because you'll seem impolite and you've already spent money on it and you've already hired a babysitter? I mean, and that's not like coming out and claiming that all everything I make is great. We're all trying, but I think that when you remember how smart your audience is you start to go oh they don't they don't want to be pandered to actually like no audience no audience is being like oh please treat me like i'm stupid they're actually smart enough to go i wish i were being treated like i'm as smart as i am yeah take me along yeah exactly take, yeah and i do i think yeah i say it all the time i think they fill in so many blanks and add meaning to everything yes for us which is great. And it's interesting about the song. Yes, you work on it for a year. And it's on the radio once and some teenager knows everything about it. Yes. Like, yes. How? But yeah, it's perceptive. Um, I asked this question whether we're at the Southeast Theater Conference or not. Um, what When you think about, when you, you just talk to a room full of people, but when you think of early career artists or you're doing a master class and it does not, it can be in any anything that you want, but what advice do you give to people who are starting out or what advice yeah. do you wish you were given? Um, well, uh, we talked about this some in the keynote, but sending that email, reaching out to people, asking for help. I think um, it can, every person who you would possibly ask for help in this field has had to be that person asking for help and they get it. 
You're not going to get a response from everyone. You're not going to get a yes from everyone. But ask. Oh, my gosh, ask. Um, if you like someone's work, let them know. So I, I, that's just career advice. I, the other thing I'd say is really balance. Find a balance between making your work and assisting and supporting the people you admire. I know people who have spent a lot of their energy being like, I'm going to assist and support, and one day I'll get the keys to the castle, and it doesn't work that way. Because what happens is you spend all this energy in someone else's process, and you haven't spent time developing your own. But also people who spend all their time doing their own thing, and they never get eyes or ears into like, well, how does anyone else do anything, right? And so it's really like, do both at the same time. You need to, when you're working as an assistant or an associate, designer, whatever, like script assistant, you need to go make your own work or else you're going to go crazy sitting quietly in that room. You need to go express the things you're learning or that you're pushing against in that process so you can learn from them while it's happening. But also, while you're making your show, like go find your way into someone else's room because you're going to be inspired. You're going to, I never thought of solving that problem that way. I never thought about asking that question that way. I learn, it is, being a magic designer is the greatest directing education I've ever gotten because I've gotten to be in the room with so many fantastic directors and see the way they work. So I'd say those things and I'd say the simple one is make things you care about with people you love. That is shape your goals and your dreams around what you want to do every day, not around what you want to be. Because I think it's very easy to go, I want to be a Broadway director. I want to be the stage manager on a national tour. I want to be on this TV show. Great. But what do you want to do? But what do you want to do? What do you want your day to look like? Well, I was thinking about that. Like when you were interviewing, this is a weird thing to say, but I don't think it's vital when you, it's vital that you make the work you need to make. It may not be vital that people see it. Not that audience sees it and that you share it. Yes. But like the people you interviewed with at Harry Potter did not come to Brooklyn to the campfire. No, well, actually they did. So, like, for example, they, they the, did, but that's after I knew them. <laughs> were friends with them, but yes, chronology was wrong. But, but you know, they, yeah. they they hadn't seen your play before. They yeah. didn't call you because I saw what you did. Absolutely, you yeah. know, and and you did what you did because you had to do it. Yeah. Oh, and that's you know, uh, it's the litmus test of what's worth your time. Is is does it lead to me getting to spend my day? spending you know again it comes back to time your time is the only thing you can't get back yeah you want to spend it doing what you want to do if you're going to create and And what you believe in and care about right and i'm so conscious like look there are lots of people like i'm saying that as like a director writer designer so i'm like a project instigator there are lots of people and this is so valid who are like i'm an actor i want to act great Find the people you want to work with and and be part of that part of the process. People who want to stage manage or be a, a technician. It's not it's not saying you have to instigate projects all the time. I think we do live in this weird, you know, every actor has to have written a pilot or written a web series. It's like, no, not necessarily. If you don't want to write, don't write. But build your community. Um, that was a good piece of advice I got. And it was hard to take because when you're a young artist – you move to some city and you're like, my community, how am I going to find the artists I love? Because people my age aren't constantly producing art. And when they are, a lot of times, I don't know if it's any good because they're just figuring something out. It takes so much work and time to find your community. And that's a really hard time. Like, like I find for a lot of early career artists, that's when it's hardest because they're like, I don't have my colleagues. And... You just have to trust. And the other thing you do is find people five years ahead of you. Yeah. Find people five years ahead of you. Not to be your community, but in the meantime, that is a great group of people to kind of see, oh, how did they end up from where I am to where they are in five years? Skylar, thank you. Thanks for the conversation. It was just so great. And it was great to hear him talk and uh, and then get to talk to him. You know, we also, I just, I, I loved, you know, I think about the farm and its mission of cultivating early career artists. And just the thing at the end when he said, you know, get, you build your community and then build your community with people who are like five years ahead of you uh, when you're starting out, especially. And I think um, 
you know, that is the idea of work with people who are better, but also work with people who know a little bit more than you and know the landscape. And yeah, it really was, it's excellent. And also the idea of building your community and send the email. You know, he's, here's somebody who sent the email to somebody he'd been following uh, to say, hey, you're working on a project. I, I love your work. My work is in a similar spirit. I'd love to work with you. You know, that, that one email shifted his life, you know, and uh, as he is flying today to go work on the Wicked production, you know, is because of that that risk. Uh, and I don't think it's a risk. Uh, he also said that everybody, when it comes to asking for help, every person who's being asked for help has at one point had to ask for help. And I think that's vital to remember. You know, you're not alone and we're not doing this on our own and nobody gets there on its own, on their own. And you know, to send it out and ask. And and he was great. He was great because we, you know, after the conversation, we then sat and talked for like 40 minutes of things that we know in common and just the landscape of the theater community in New York right now. And it's, you know, it's nice to talk about Broadway, but we both talked about the challenges of producing independently and, and how the finances of that have changed over the last 10 years but really the last three years um dramatically and and the challenge of finding that opportunity when you're starting out and and like creating the work with your community and why it's that is the important thing is because you know you need to find the people who are going to support you and create support you and you can support and help you build something in a towards doing the work you want to do. And I, I also love that he talked about that, do what you want to do when you're creating your own work. Because uh, there's no guarantee. And yes, there's always a project where you're getting a job and you're getting paid. And that's important uh, that maybe that's not exactly what you want to be doing. But when you're creating your own work and, and you're pursuing it and chasing opportunities, look for what you want to do. And I just, I loved it. The conversation was great. I am thrilled to be back at Southeast Theater Conference. I'm thrilled that it's up and running with the energy it's going on. And um, and I'm hoping, you know, have a couple more conversations and share them with you. And, and, and um, yeah, with that, we're out. <laughs>